You are listening to the Bottom Line Podcast, where those living with or beyond bowel cancer, as well as health professionals involved in bowel cancer treatment and care, share their inspirational stories and lived experiences with host and bowel cancer survivor, Stephanie. Today, we are chatting to Bernard Chin. Bernard, many thanks for joining us today on the Bottom Line Podcast. As a gastroenterologist, we want to gain your perspective as a healthcare professional and share your insights and help demystify a patient's bowel cancer diagnosis. So before we get started, in a nutshell, can you describe what a gastroenterologist does in layman's terms? Uh, firstly, Steph, thanks for having me on the program. It's, it's a real pleasure to be included, especially with Bowel Cancer Awareness Month coming up later in the year as well. Um, so a gastroenterologist is a physician, a specialist uh, doctor who's done more training in internal medicine and then has subspecialized in the gastrointestinal and liver organs. Obviously, medicine is much more specialized again these days, but in general, that's what a gastroenterologist is. Uh, and most gastroenterologists would be very comfortable looking at diseases of the stomach and the bowel. Can you take us through then how a colonoscopy is performed? Now, I've had many of these, <laughs> many. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've had two myself, so I, I empathise. <laughs> so basically, um, colonoscopies were probably invented in the uh, 70s and 80s and have uh, been improving ever since. It's a uh, procedure where uh, the patient is sedated and then a camera in the form of a black tube is introduced through a natural orifice like the anus and into the large bowel, non-invasively. So this is what we call a non-invasive procedure. We're not cutting into the patient. The patient is perfectly well when they wake up uh, and ready to get back to their normal lives. Uh, the essential components of the colonoscopy is the bowel preparation. So patients are given special instructions on a diet, usually about three days before the procedure. And then they're given a bowel preparation, typically about 12 to 24 hours before the procedure. That varies, but the so-called split bowel prep is now quite popular because that gives good results. And that could mean a, a bowel preparation done the day before and the day off uh, the procedure. The, the worst part of the procedure and what most patients complain of is the bowel preparation uh, itself. It gives you diarrhea, so be prepared. And you often have to um, stop work when you start doing the bowel preparation and have to be near a toilet. The biggest thing I found was make sure you have wipes, wet wipes and lanolin is my advice. <laughs> Correct. Yes. So nappy lotion or papaya lotion, that all that sort of thing works uh, for anal chapping. Um, yeah. And the bowel prep uh, has developed uh, a long way as well in the last few decades. It used to be three liters of a very salty liquid and people would gag and vomit. Um, and that's come a, a long way as well. So most people will be able to tolerate the, the two liters, uh, typically of a macrogol containing uh, product like movie prep. How long does an actual colonoscopy take? For most patients in Australia, they're giving, given a cocktail of drugs, uh, one of which will take away their memory. So time uh, will have no meaning for that person. But in general, the procedure itself can take anywhere between 20 minutes uh, and well over an hour. 
but typically about 20 minutes, depending on whether there are complex polyps to remove and so on. But if a normal diagnostic colonoscopy, anywhere between 10 and 20 minutes, a couple of polyps, you know, half an hour, complex polyps, anywhere from half an hour to an hour and a half. And coming out and having that sandwich is often the best part of it. <laughs> That's correct. Oh. <laughs> so pick the day surgery carefully. Some, some feed you better than others. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Are there any risks with the procedure? Yeah. So again, the procedure has come a long way. Uh, the the oft quoted complication uh, is perforation of the bowel, which has been uh, quoted as anywhere between one in a hundred and one in a thousand. But I think in reality, colonoscopies are now so much safer because bowel preps are better. The instruments uh, have improved, and the level of training has exponentially improved as well. I mean, in in cans. Um, I, I would say the perforation rate is well above one in 5,000. And when you do get a perforation, often there's pathology there, you know, there might be a cancer or something else going on. If you have a normal colon, um, the perforation rates are extremely uh, rare. If you do have a polyp, uh, removing polyps, you know, that's, that's cutting into tissue. Uh, and we use instruments to minimize complications such as bleeding and so on, but a little bit of bleeding can be expected. Uh, severe bleeding requiring an admission to hospital for blood transfusion and another emergency colonoscopy is relatively rare. We hear a lot these days about a quality colonoscopy, and I think you've touched on that, but what does that mean? So the, the, the first thing is the bowel preparation. So what we tell patients is if they see brown, we see brown. So it has to be clear. If it's clear, then, then we can see everything in the bowel. Um, another complication of colonoscopy is the so-called lesion miss rate. So colonoscopies are done by humans and humans uh, can perform errors. Uh, and the, the miss rate in some studies, albeit a long time ago, uh, were of the order of 5%. So you know, up to one in 20 colonoscopies can miss a significant lesion, most of them being polyps, some of them early cancers already. So that's a significant miss rate. So all the uh, improvements over the years have been aimed at reducing that uh, complication, that miss rate, uh, you know, improving techniques, improving training, improving instrumentation, using carbon dioxide for insufflation of the bowel so, so that uh, we can blow the bowel up, see more quality of bowel preparation, explaining to patients why they need a good bowel prep, uh, which is really in their best interest so that we're not missing lesions. So that, those are sort of patient-centered uh, issues. And then there are the doctor-centered issues as well. So the quality of colonoscopies or the, or the miss rates between physicians uh, can be significant. And that, that, that was shown in some studies. So just because uh, you're good at studying and you're good at being a doctor doesn't mean automatically you're good at doing procedures. And we've recognized that. Uh, so at around the same time as 2018, 2019, as we, uh, when Medicare was going through the um, the item numbers, the, the body governing uh, standards in colonoscopy, GISA, decided to uh, institute something called recertification. And that's going through uh, medicine, uh, following in the footsteps of the airline industry. So uh, recertification of airline pilots, for instance, just to make sure that um, they're, they're current, they're safe and so on. And that's been slow to be adopted in, in medicine. Um, but now, you know, the majority of gastroenterologists have been recertified and will have to be recertified every three years. So that gives 
the public confidence that if your doctor is certified, that they meet a certain standard, the list of gastroenterologists and surgeons who scope uh, who are recertified can be found on the GISA website, uh, and that's a public uh, register. So for patients who are interested in knowing, you know, how well trained a doctor is and how well updated they are, they could go into the register, type the name in and go, hmm, is my doctor certified or not? That's such great advice for both patients and GPs that they can search the website and see if their gastroenterologist has been accredited or has been re-accredited and it gives the patient such peace of mind. Now, if we look at bowel prep, why is it important to do a good bowel prep? And if someone is unable to drink all the fluid, how does that then affect their colonoscopy outcomes? The bowel has a natural um, speed. So as with everything in biological systems, there's the 80-20 principle. So 80% of people behave predictably around the average and 20% will be on either side of the extremes. So we found that about 10 to 20% of people have slower bowels and they generally have poorer quality bowel prep, even if they've done all the right things. And often that can't be uh, predicted until they've had their first colonoscopy, in which case then we might have to bring them back a bit earlier with some extra bowel prep or make notes for the next bowel, uh, for the next colonoscopy that we give them some extra as well. Um, going to the issue of tolerability of bowel prep. So that's al- always been an issue. So it doesn't matter what bowel prep you do and, uh, and how advanced we are now with bowel preparation, there's always going to be a proportion of patients that can't tolerate it, you know, nausea, um, side effects of the, the medication. Um, and we can, we can look at those special cases and, and tailor it to the patient. You know, if patients can't take two liters in a 12-hour period, we might stretch it stretch it out. Uh, in my case, I use uh, what we call prokinetic agents to get the bowel moving a bit quicker as well, like a stimulant. Uh, and, that's, and that's helpful as well. There has been techniques that have come and gone by the wayside, like uh, bowel irrigation, tablet-based bowel preps. Unfortunately, none of them have proven to be uh, as good as the, as the real stuff. So they, they, they've sort of um, disappeared now. So we're really left with the movie prep. Um, and then we modify that depending on um, what the bowel prep was like the, the last time. If, if someone comes into you and they haven't done their bowel prep properly and you can't do a colonoscopy, what happens then? You Are you able to fill that spot or does that mean that that position then just goes by the wayside? If the patient's done everything and the bowel prep was inadequate, then that's bad luck. But non-compliance is also an issue, you know, um, language difficulties, uh, mental health issues, um, and, and so on. So we do have uh, patients where the bowel prep is really quite terrible for all sorts of reasons. Unfortunately, the patient has to be processed like anyone else. They go through the pre-admission clinics, um, see the nurses, see the doctors, anesthetists, they go to sleep. So for all intents and purposes, it's a you know, it's taken up the slot of a colonoscopy and you, you really can't fill that spot. There is quite a significant wait time issue in Australia in various parts. So that would also impact, I would imagine. That's correct. I mean, for a long time, we've known about the disparity between healthcare access uh, in the country, in regional centres versus the city, as in the further you are away from a capital city, 
uh, the poorer the access and the longer the wait times, uh, which have detrimental um, effects on the outcomes of bowel cancer. As you know, the earlier you pick up bowel cancer, the better the outcomes. Uh, for instance, in Cairns, uh, we used to have one of the longest wait times in Queensland. And because Queensland is so regional, um, by extension in Australia, um, and Queensland Health has thrown a lot of money into the public system in the last few years. Uh, and we have various programs now for the private system to help out. So, for instance, um, you know, I, I do about 12 colonoscopies per week uh, for the public system uh, to help them reduce their wait times. So programs like that uh, is, is, uh, is very helpful. I, I am concerned about the backlog caused by COVID. Um, the, the numbers are sobering, uh, particularly in places like Victoria. You know, a lot of um, procedures have lost 12 months. Yes, COVID certainly has had quite an impact. We've already had data indicating that there were 78,000 less colonoscopies performed between January and September in 2020, which, as you say, is very sobering. Now, back to the colonoscopies. Can you explain what happens if a polyp is discovered? Sure. So a polyp looks a little bit like a mushroom, typically. I mean, they can be flat or, um, or any other shape, but typically it looks like a mushroom with a little stalk. Uh, when an endoscopist uh, uh, encounters something like that, it has to be removed. So we, we've got various instruments, but the simplest one is what we call a snare. It's like a lasso. We strangle the stalk of the polyp and send an electrical current through it, which then cuts through the polyp, as well as cauterize it, because these polyps often have a central artery that can bleed quite a lot. So in that one uh, movement, we, we both cut and cauterize the polyp. We then uh, remove that polyp um, either by lassoing it again if it's too big or just suck it through the channel of the skull and send it off to the pathologist. That's very important because we need, need to know what the histology of that polyp is. That has um, a dramatic bearing on when we come back um, for the subsequent colonoscopies. And in, if in fact it comes back as a mini cancer, that changes the outcome of the colonoscopy. The patient may need to then progress to surgery. So I suppose the next question is, what happens if you do discover cancer? You know, in my, my instance, I went in for a colonoscopy thinking that it was nothing and came out to discover a little later, of course, but that I had stage three cancer. So if, what happens if it's discovered? Yeah. So, so often a, a cancer is pretty obvious. It, it has um, macroscopic features of cancer. And we take biopsies just to confirm it. You always need tissue um, diagnosis. And once that's confirmed, uh, we go on to stage the, the patient. As you said, you had stage three, and that's a little bit more advanced than what we would like to see. So we, we send them for a CT scan, typically of the uh, chest, abdomen, and pelvis, just to ensure that there is no distant spread of cancer. And if that's the case, if it's just stage one, stage two, uh, we send the patient to a surgeon. The cancer is normally marked internally with uh, various techniques like tattooing and clips and so on. Um, and that helps uh, the surgeon localize and plan uh, the surgery. If it's a little bit more advanced, uh, particularly on the CT scan, then we get an oncologist, uh, a, a physician who specializes in cancer treatment. Uh, to be involved as well, because we may need to get, give the patient chemotherapy plus radiation before or after uh, the procedure. 
So uh, the beauty of the bowel cancer screening program is it's designed to pick up cancers before uh, they present with symptoms and therefore the need for chemotherapy and radiation is is much lower than when patients present with symptoms. Yes, and I think it's um, important to state that the bowel screening program by the government only detects blood. It doesn't mean if you have a positive that you've got cancer, does it? Correct. So I, I try and allay my patients' um, worries when they come in with a positive faecal cold blood test that the statistics show only about 10% of people will have cancer and early cancer at that if they don't have any symptoms. And about 30% of people will have uh, precancerous polyps, which is an opportunity to prevent bowel cancer. So, you know, when you look at a glass um, half full scenario, that's 60% chance that you, you don't have anything nasty at all. So well worth doing. Absolutely, absolutely. As a gastroenterologist, can you explain how you inform your patients after they've woken up that they have bowel cancer? Yeah, so breaking bad news is always difficult, particularly when the patients have, have had sedation. So often I, I wait till they're fully awake. Um, so they, they, they're sitting in their recovery room, they're having something to eat, and then I wait for their pickup, which is often a loved one, you know, a partner or a parent or something like that. Uh, it's very important that they have that social support around them. Um, and it's also important that we do not shy away from explaining to them what we've found on the day so that they're not, you know, stewing about it, worried about it. So we have to be upfront. We'll put them in a, a quiet area with lots of privacy, with social supports, and give them time to absorb the information and assure them that, you know, we've got a roadmap for investigating further and treatment, and it's not a death sentence. You know, bowel cancer is not a death sentence anymore, uh, and, and we, we do have a plan for them. Uh, and give them the opportunity to ask questions if they have any. Most patients are shell-shocked, and, and we, we try and schedule the follow-up appointment as soon as practicable, so normally after the pathology and the scans have come back in about three or four working days. Great. How do you prepare yourself for delivering that news? And then how do you feel after? Because I think we often forget it's the patient, but you're, you're doing this regularly. So how do you cope? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's always difficult. Um, and and when, when you do find cancer, then I have to set aside some time. So it might be in, a, in the middle of a very busy list, but you still have to set aside some time, settle your mind, um, and give that patient a bit more time than you would otherwise for a patient who has uh, a normal result and be prepared you know, for them to sort of bombard you with some questions there and then. Uh, experience makes all, all, all these communication uh, skills easier. So it was always hard early on, but I, I'm reassured by the fact that the prognosis is reasonable for most patients with uh, bowel cancer found early. And I like to communicate that to the patient, give them hope um, that there is a silver lining to this. Part of what you do is you train registrars to become gastroenterologists. Yeah. Um, how do you think the next generation are going to be better prepared to come through the system? Like, like any training culture, uh, we have come a long way. Um, so when I did my training, we were expected to learn by osmosis. Um, which wasn't, which wasn't the best. Um, and, and over the last two decades uh, that I've been in practice, uh, we understand that uh, registrars need a lot of attention. Um, and, and we've 
definitely given them that uh, over the last few years. Communication skills have also come a long way uh, compared to where they used to be. And I think new consultants these days are very comfortable in communicating with patients and delivering bad news and being empathetic uh, and understanding that patients have a lot to deal with. Um, so I, I think the, and, and I've had two registrars over the last 10 years who've finished training, gone away, did more training and come back and join me for a few years. And I've seen them grow as individuals and as, as doctors. And that's been very gratifying as well. The world of specialist and technical terminology when you've been diagnosed can be very overwhelming. How do you help patients navigate this maze? Yeah, so I, I try and use uh, uh, language that's as simple as possible, and I try and give them a roadmap. So I start off with uh, the end in mind. So the first thing I tell them that is, this is not a death sentence. This is not the end. And the end of the, the journey will end up with you having had surgery and surviving this disease. And then we work backwards from there. You know, how do we get to that outcome? Um, and that would involve imaging like x-rays and CT, seeing a few different professionals, whether it's medical oncologists or surgeons and so on. Um, and the surgeons will explain their part, which is quite technical as well if you need an, an operation. But I think it's very important to give an overview to the patient and what the end looks like. And that end is usually quite optimistic. Someone else described it recently to me that cancer is a team game. <laughs> and that I think is a really nice analogy because it is, isn't it? Be it your social network, be health professionals, you are all a team working together and showing the patient a roadmap. Hmm. Bernard, finally, what are the three things you would like patients to take away from today's discussion? Like any other public health initiative in this country, people should take it seriously. The participation rate for bowel cancer screening is still languishing around the sort of 40% mark. So that, that tells you 60% of patients get a kit in the, in the mail and they just you know, leave it on a shelf, they throw it away, you know, or let it expire. So we've got a lot of work to do to convince people that this is a life-saving public health measure. Um, it's not invasive. It, you're not dealing with uh, fresh poo. In fact, at no stage do you touch anything uh, disgusting. And poo's part of life, though, Bernard, isn't it? Correct. It is part of the process, and we've got to start talking about it. Correct. That's right. And it saves lives. You know, it's one of the very few screening programs that unequivocally save lives. What are the three things then as a healthcare professional, and you may have already answered some of that, but healthcare professionals can do to improve outcomes for bowel cancer patients? So I think patients uh, have a lot of respect for their general practitioners, their GPs. And I, I think GPs need to make bowel cancer screening a part of their uh, wellness screen for patients over 45 and definitely over 50 and start talking about it and normalize it like breast screen and cervical cancer screening has, you know, has become part of a well woman's life now. Organizations like Bowel Cancer Australia are doing such a great job, you know, with their um, social media presence and their advertising. We need influential ambassadors who've had uh, brushes with bowel cancer or family with bowel cancer who are prepared, you know, to go out there and publicize it as well. Bernard, 
I know you're very, very busy. We've gone a little bit over uh, the time, but I just wanted to thank you for your insights and perspective as a health professional. It's so important that we demystify these procedures and we empower patients with as much information as possible. So thank you for your time today. It's been a real pleasure, Stephanie, anytime. And we'll see you again next year if you need any help. Thank you so much for listening to the Bottom Line podcast. To find out more about bowel cancer or for support or simply to donate, please go to bowelcanceraustralia.org.